Hi there, this is Phil St. Romain, and today I'm going to be doing a review of the book, The Universal Christ, How a Forgotten Reality Can Change Everything We See, Hope For, and Believe, by Richard Rohr, who is a popular Christian writer. I'll be using the hardback version of the book for page number references. The book was published by Convergent in 2019, copyright Center for Action and Contemplation. I read this book a few weeks ago and struggled with many parts of it, reflected deeply on it, did research on it, dialogued with my spiritual director, did some journaling and a great deal of writing and so forth, and finally wrote up a review. The review is published on my website, shalomplace.com. It's entitled, A Critique by a Catholic Author and Spiritual Director, Philip St. Romain. Rather straightforward. So what I'll be doing here is reading my, my book review, um, to put it basically in podcast version. As one who has companioned many people as a Christian spiritual director for over 30 years, I'm very familiar with Richard Rohr's writings and have, without hesitation, encouraged those I meet with to make use of them all along. I have several misgivings about this present work, however. Sections of it are deeply moving and insightful. Chapter 10 on Mary, for example, is superb, and Chapter 12 on the meaning of the crucifixion is also powerful and informative. It's also good to hear Father Rohr speak so positively about some aspects of Catholic teaching and practice, but the way he has set things up in this book is problematic, in my opinion. As he noted on page 64 of the hardback edition, open quotes, good theology will have a hard time making up for bad anthropology, close quotes. And that's the main problem, in my view, along with several others that I will enumerate below. Number one, his use of the term Christ. When Jesus asks his apostles, who do people say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus affirmed this response. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17. This reference to Jesus as the Christ is found throughout the New Testament. It means anointed one and is a synonym for Messiah. Who is the Christ? It is Jesus of Nazareth. Throughout this book, however, Rohr uses the term Christ as basically a synonym for Logos, the Word of God, who is God, as we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. The New Testament does use the term Christ in a cosmic sense in places, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, but when doing so, it is usually making some connection with Jesus, as in Colossians 1, 18-20. The Logos is God, and Jesus is the Logos incarnate, who is called the Christ. 
The Logos exists before the Incarnation and sustains the universe at all times, as Christians have always known. But the Ascended Jesus is also cosmically present, seated at the right hand of the Father, as we say in the Creed, God's agent for transforming the human race and all of creation. The Ascended Christ is universally present and available to all. By conflating the terms Christ and Logos, Rohr blurs the distinction between the pre-existing Logos and the ascended cosmic Christ. Both are universal in reach and concern, but it is the ascended cosmic Christ that Paul is referring to when he speaks of the creation being in Christ. Rohr wants Christ to be the term that can, quote, reground Christianity as a natural religion and not one simply based on a special revelation, close quotes, page 6. But a special revelation is what the term Christ traditionally indicates, and there's just no getting around that. The Logos theology of early fathers like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and recently Pope Benedict also recognized a broader context for the saving work of the Logos in history, but they did not conflate this with the unique revelation of Jesus as the Christ. Point number two, creation. On page 43, Rohr refers to himself as a panentheist, which means God in creation and creation in God. But what he actually describes about creation seems more pantheistic. Traditional Christian teaching affirms a duality, God as one kind of being, creation as beings made by God. For Rohr, however, it's much, much cozier than that. Quote, Everything visible, without exception, is the outpouring of God. Close quotes. Page 13. And, quote, Long before Jesus' personal incarnation, Christ was deeply embedded in all things, as all things. Close quotes. Pages 13 and 14. Creation, he says, is a first incarnation of God. Pages 12 and 13. And matter itself is, quote, the very body of God. Page 16, close quote. Later in the book, in the chapter on Eucharist, he comes on even stronger. Quote, the universe is the body of God, both in its essence and in its suffering. Close quote. Page 134. The term essence generally indicates the real nature of a thing. So it sounds like he is saying that the essence of God and the universe are the same, which is a different usage of the term than one finds in Christian theology and philosophy. Essence describes what something is, godness or humanness, for example. God's essence is unlimited existence, unlimited knowing and loving, and so forth. This cannot be said of any creature, for creatures all have limitations. Rohr, it seems, wants to ground the goodness of the creature in an unshakable foundation. 
hence his use of the term incarnation. But that's putting the matter forward in a way that obfuscates the traditional use of the term incarnation. Traditional Christian teaching affirms, already, the innate goodness of all creatures, for they owe their existence to a good and loving God, from whom they are distinct, though not separate. Point number three, Jesus and creation. Rohr does acknowledge that Jesus is the Logos incarnate, but, quote, Jesus came out of an already Christ-soaked world, close quote, page 15. Although he, Jesus, is considered the anointed one, what he really reveals is that, quote, all is anointed, close quote, page 20. This would be consistent with a pantheistic view of creation, as indeed Rohr states in language that suggests a key statement in the Nicene Creed, Quote, everything that exists in material form is the offspring of some primal source, which originally existed only as spirit. Close quote. Page 12. Offspring equals begotten, not made, a phrase used in the creed. I'm sure the phrasing here is not accidental. Roar is being provocative. But if you still don't get it, quote, most Catholics and Protestants still think of the Incarnation as a one-time and one-person event having only to do with the person of Jesus of Nazareth instead of a cosmic event that has soaked all of history in the Divine Presence from the very beginning. Close quote. Page 28. Well, yes, that's precisely how most Christians think of the Incarnation, and rightly so. For Roar, then, Jesus is the second incarnation of God, to show us that we and all of creation are already incarnations of God. You'll find a reference to this on page 12. This equivocation of the creation as a first incarnation and body of God with Jesus as a second incarnation and body of God is heterodox. Yet this perspective informs almost everything in the book. It is the book's chief flaw. Point number four, sin and evil. One wonders, then, what is a creature for Rohr? Such understanding is foundational for theology and spirituality, and Rohr is most vague about this. Because he is a Catholic priest, our presumption should be that his view is that of the Church but we've already seen that he departs significantly, at least in his conceptualization of creation. If our essence is divine, that we are all incarnations of God, then why are we out of touch with this? Why would any essentially divine being do wrong or commit evil acts? Traditional Christian anthropology holds that creatures are simultaneously one with and distinct from God, an ontological duality. And this introduces the possibility of being in a real relationship with God. It also introduces the possibility of sin and evil. In parts of Rohr's book, he seems to take for granted this ontological distinction between the creature and God, 
acknowledging the reality of sin as well. He contradicts himself here and in other areas in the book. But sin, for Rohr, seems to be more about ignorance of our connectedness with all things, lack of an, he'll call it, incarnational worldview on page 18. Traditional Christian teaching recognizes ignorance as a problem as well, but roots sin more in the will, as a lack of power to do the good or a willful resistance to doing so. Point number five, the significance of Jesus. Does the incarnation of Jesus do anything to deepen or heal the relations between God and humans? Does he have anything to do with our experience of divine life besides reveal to us that we are not separate from the divine? In traditional understanding, Jesus reconnects the human race with God in his own person and blesses us with the Holy Spirit to empower us to overcome sin and live a life of love. The reconnecting process invariably mentions him dying for us or dying for our sins, the meaning of this being understood in different ways. There's no getting around this. Even that wonderful reference to the cosmic Christ in Colossians 1 ends up professing, quote, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Close quote. As good as Rohr's chapter on the atonement really is, it does not touch on any of these traditional themes. More than anything else, Jesus, for Rohr, is the revealer of God's unconditional love, who shows us that we are already good and loved and one with everything, including God. That's all fine and well, but there's something missing here. Rohr considers it a theological error to view Jesus as God, page 19, and notes that Jesus did not teach us to worship him, which is true. But the New Testament reports several instances of people worshiping Jesus even during his life, by the Magi when he was an infant, for example, and his apostles in the boat, Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, the book of Revelations, chapter 5, verse 13, states that, quote, Every creature in heaven and on earth gives praise and glory to the Lamb forever and ever. Close quote. That Lamb is Jesus. It's okay to worship Jesus. Rohr sometimes expresses strange dichotomies between Jesus and the Christ, like they're two different things. For example, quote, when your isolated I turns into a connected we, you have moved from Jesus to Christ. Close quote, page 37. This sounds all the more bizarre if you are accustomed, as most Christians are, to regarding Jesus and the Word as a unified whole, the Christ. Jesus and Christ are split again when he writes, quote, to be loved by Jesus enlarges our heart capacity. To be loved by Christ enlarges our mental capacity. Close quote. Page 36. 
Just how one can be loved by Jesus without being loved simultaneously by Christ is baffling, for Jesus is the human means through which the incarnate word expresses. They act as one. When, later in the book, chapter 16, he stresses the importance of contemplative awareness over reason, one wonders how this squares with what he wrote about Christ and mentality. Reason, he states on page 205, thinks in a binary manner. But that's not true. Reason is perfectly capable of holistic understandings, of recognizing the both and of things. Some teachings can be partially true, partially false. Reason can see all this. Reason is capable of understanding and affirming connectedness, even contributing to the awakening of awe and wonder. Contemplative awareness is a good thing, but it needs to be integrated with reason. The Logos is not just about light and seeing, it's also about intelligibility, which is a vital characteristic of the creation. Jesus said that the truth would set us free in John chapter 8, verse 32. Try comprehending truth without your reason. I'm always wary when spiritual writers discount reason, as this tends to discourage any rational critique of their work, or else gives them a reason to discount critique because it's, quote, dualistic. Missing in this book is an accounting of the Christ in a Trinitarian context. I know that he has written a book recently on the Trinity, but it would help if he had said something in this work about the relationship between the Lagos and the Father and the Spirit. Jesus often speaks of his divine family members. He is about doing the will of the Father and states that it is better for him to go, that is, die, so he can send the Spirit to us. John chapter 16 verse 7. This gives a fuller understanding of the role of the Christ in the grand scheme of things. Rohr's silence on this Trinitarian context is unusual, especially since it's supposed to be a book on Christology. Point number six, Jesus and the Resurrection. Rohr believes in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, quote, because it affirms what the whole physical and biological universe is also saying. Close quote, page 171. It would be better, however, if he believed it as a mystery of our faith, as Christians have from the first. Continuing his teaching on a deep connection between the first incarnation of creation and the second of Jesus, he states that resurrection is the, quote, universal and observable pattern of everything. If divine incarnation has any truth to it, then resurrection is a foregone conclusion and not a one-time anomaly in the body of Jesus, close quotes, pages 99 and 100. And, quote, resurrection is just incarnation taken to its logical conclusion, close quote, page 170. He then points to science as a complement to religious faith for understanding this truth. But science can produce no evidence of any individual organism resurrecting like Jesus did. Not one. He 
He gives examples like springtime, regeneration, healing, forgiveness, and so forth. But these are not resurrections of the sort that Jesus experienced. They are renewals or reassimilations, but that's not resurrection. What science teaches as the second law of thermodynamics makes clear that all matter eventually dissipates to a more simple form, which is what always happens to the bodies of organisms when they die. Jesus completely escaped this process. His dead body has been restored to a more glorious type of life that transcends death. And this was not predicted by science. Science cannot account for it or explain it. Conflating Jesus' resurrection with natural renewal patterns like springtime minimizes the significance of what happened to him. It was a supernatural event. But Rohr stated earlier in the book that he can, quote, no longer make a significant distinction between the natural and the supernatural, close quote. Page 15. Well, apparently he cannot. Point number seven, factual inaccuracies. Some things Rohr just gets plain old wrong, or else he didn't do proper research. On page 14, for example, he describes neutrinos as, quote, slivers of light that pass through the entire universe, close quote. I'm not sure what he's got in mind here, but that's not what they are. He writes on page 171, quote, If matter is inhabited by God, then matter is somehow eternal, close quote. Well, no, it's not. God loves all creatures, but that does not make us eternal. Matter had a beginning in space and time with the Big Bang approximately 13.7 billion years ago. Something that has a beginning cannot be eternal. In writing about Jesus' glorified body, he says that it is, quote, similar to what Hindus and Buddhists sometimes call the subtle body, then goes on to refer to halos and auras, page 178. Eastern religions do speak of subtle bodies, but these are not conceptually similar to the glorified body of Jesus. They are different levels of energy emanating from a living person. Some of these levels, sometimes called astral and causal levels, are thought to continue after death, as Christians believe the spiritual soul does as well. Other bodies, for example the etheric, are thought to dissipate at death. Subtle bodies and souls are not the same as the glorified body of Jesus. Rohr here obfuscates the drastic differences. At the bottom of page 27, he conflates the terms incarnation, salvation, and theosis, saying they mean the same thing. Well, they don't mean the same thing. They're related, but they indicate something very different. Point number eight, straw man fallacies. I sometimes wonder what kind of reader Rohr has in mind when he writes, for he often serves up the silliest of straw men in making his points. Chapter 1, for example, is entitled, Christ is not Jesus' last name. 
Well, no kidding. Page 28. God is not an old man on a throne. Well, whoever believes that? Even the subtitle of the book, How a Forgotten Reality Can Change Everything We See, Hope For, and Believe. Forgotten reality? Forgotten by whom? The Great Comma is the title of Part 2 of the book, and refers to the comma that separates the phrases born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate in the Apostles' Creed. Rohr wonders why the Creed omits, quote, everything Jesus said and did between his birth and death. Did all the things Jesus said and did in those years not count for much? Close quote. Pages 103-104. He continues the criticism that it lacks mention of morality, service, suffering, love, and so forth. The straw man here is that the Apostles' Creed ought to be something other than what it is, a brief statement of early Christian beliefs about God and Christ used in liturgy and catechesis, just like it is today. We might as well fault the Lord's Prayer for saying nothing about the Holy Spirit, how silly would that be? For Rohr, the supposed omissions connote something sinister, an, open quote, imperial Christ, who lives inside the world of static and mythic proclamations, close quote, page 105. I don't know what part of the creed gives that impression. It can be stated wholeheartedly today, with a more dynamic understanding of the universe in mind. The whole treatment of hell in chapter 14 knocks down the notion that a loving God wouldn't undertake positive punishments against people. Retributive justice, this is called. But hell might also be regarded as a state of being experienced by those rebellious angels and other creatures, including humans, who are completely closed to divine grace. Such a hell would not be retributive. It would be a natural consequence of shutting God out of one's life. Such a possible hell cannot be discounted unless one believes that God will override free will to prevent it from happening. Jesus taught about the possibility of hell, and none of us can claim to know more about this matter than him. Summary then. On page 23, Rohr asked the reader to, quote, Trust your Christian common sense, close quote. And that is what informs my critique of the universal Christ. I know the book is quite popular, a number one bestseller on Amazon. Rohr is a very popular Christian writer, and what he's attempting to articulate in this book is nothing short of an updated understanding of Christ and the Christian mysteries. It will influence many as indeed it has with the people I companion in spiritual direction. My sense is that the central themes of the book deviate too significantly from orthodox teachings to shed new light on such. A concern I have is whether readers of this book have the educational background to sort things out. Some will, no doubt, but many will not. Rohr uses scripture throughout the book to back up his teaching, but he often misinterprets the text or spins them to support the meaning he's expressing.
As one of my spiritual directees recently told me, sometimes he says things that don't feel right, but I'm not sure why. Perhaps this critique will help people like him to put words to their reservations. My sense is that with this book, Richard Rohr is trying to build bridges between Buddhism and Christianity. And he also wants to resonate with those many who have been hurt in some way by church teachers or teachings. He also seems to be softening Christianity's claim that Jesus is the exclusive incarnation of God. Inclusivity is a very, very big theme in this book. And these are all worthy considerations, but there's only so far you can go without compromising a religion's core beliefs and values. Whether or not Rohr has done so will be for the reader to decide. To me, he has gone too far.